Open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 14. We spent a lot of time last year, at the end of last year and the beginning of this year, talking about the upside-down kingdom. Talking about the fact that God, when He created this world, and this world is not just this physical world, it is this spiritual world, He created it according to certain rules, because God operates by rules and principles which are reflections of His character and His personality and His ways. And then when in that kingdom, it was called paradise. Everything was blessed, everything worked well, and we saw that Satan came in and his whole goal was to turn that into the wrong order. That's all he had to do was get it out of order. And the way he did it was to lie to them about about the truth of those principles and basically to get them looking at themselves and not at God because everything in the kingdom of God is based on him and focused on him and when they were they were so lost in who he was and who God is they were not even conscious of themselves we saw that they weren't even aware that they didn't have clothes on but they were so blessed and so prosperous and so well taken care of and it was paradise and then we saw that Satan came in to get them to begin to look at themselves And he lied to them and said, God's keeping something from you. Therefore, take things into your own hands, because if you don't, God will keep things from you. And that they bought that lie, and as a result, the the kingdom was turned upside down. That you and I were born into into a world, into a kingdom, this world, that operates on those perversions of the principles of God. There's not two sets of principles Because Satan can't create anything. All he can do is take principles God has created and pervert them in our thinking. But the problem is you and I were born into this. We're saturated with everything in life around us, from our families to school to the news media to the whole assumptions of life are based on these perverted principles, perversions of God's principles, the ultimate part of which is really focused just on me. And so... So what we, we've seen that, and we've gone through those, and we've looked at other things, and as I've shared with some people, I was only planning to spend one Sunday on those principles. We spent at least eight or nine Sundays. And now I can see why, because it's laid a foundation for so many other things that we're going to do. So we now realize, just because we've always done things that way, just because we've always understood things that way, does not mean it's right. does not mean it's true. And the ultimate proof of it is, how well is it working? We're going to look at another thing that's like that today. It's based on some other things that we've been talking about. Genesis chapter 14. Now, we're going to pick up a little further down, but what's happened basically here is that there's a king named Shedalorim who was a king up from the north, and he has come down and he has been oppressing, the, the, he has been oppressing Sodom, Gomorrah, and some other nations. And they have paid him tribute for, I think it's 12 years. And they decided after 12 years, they'd had enough and they rebelled. That's in verse 4. And so what happens is this king comes down from the north and he comes down against these different kingdoms that are in Palestine, where Israel is right now. And we're going to pick up here in verse uh, 14. What had happened is they came down and they, 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 they took off everything that was in Sodom and Gomorrah including Lot, who was Abraham's nephew. They took all their goods, they took all their families, they just took everything. Verse 14, Now when Abram heard that his brother, which was actually his nephew, was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan, that's the very northern part of Israel. And he divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. Now the king of Sodom, because it was his kingdom that was stolen, went out to meet him in the valley of Shah, which is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him. Now, then, so what's happened is they've gone out, there's this, they've rebelled against the king from the north. He's come down and basically taken everybody back to his home, his home city. And, and Abram heard about this because his nephew was one of the ones that was taken along with his family. So Abram, he, he's got enough of an army in his own household to go after him. He goes up in his own household with his own soldiers 
And he brings back all that was taken, not just of Lot and his family, but all that was taken from Sodom and Gomorrah he brings back. And now the king of Sodom is coming out to greet him and to thank him because he's basically saved everything that was stolen from them. That's the background here. Now we're in verse 14. Then after this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of the God Most High. Now we don't have time to really get into a study of Melchizedek. If you go over to Hebrews 7, you'll see a little more explanation of this. The word Melchizedek in Hebrew means king of righteousness. And this describes him as the king or prince of Salem, which is shalom or peace. So in Hebrew, his name is Prince of Righteous, King of Righteousness, King of Peace. Does that ring a bell? I think someone else has called that, especially in Revelation. There's good authority to, to and it doesn't say it, but there's good reason to believe, because if you get into, into, into uh, the Psalms and then all, again into uh, Hebrews, it makes clear that this man had no father or mother. He had no genealogy. He's just always existed. So many theologians, and I, I'm not a theologian, but I tend to agree with them, believe that this is what is called a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Pre-incarnate means before he was born in Bethlehem. You understand that that's not when Jesus came into existence. That's when he took on flesh. John's Gospel begins by saying, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What is a Word? It's an expression of something. So in the beginning was God the Father, and was also the full expression of Him. Well, what do we use? Don't I say the Son's just to chip off the old block? He's an expression of His Father. And so there was the Father, there was the Son, and there's the Holy Spirit. They've existed from all time. What happened in John 1.14 is the Word the second person of the Godhead, became flesh and now dwell among us and took the name Jesus. But he's always existed. And there are instances in the Old Testament where it seems as if he appeared. He may well have been the fourth man in the fiery furnace when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in there because Nebuchadnezzar said, there's a fourth man in there and his appearance is like the Son of God. So there's indications that he appeared in different places and I believe this is one of them. Whether it is or not doesn't matter. But this is a priest. This is what we need to see. This is a priest of the Most High God. Now what a priest does, his function, especially in the Old Testament, his function is a go-between, a mediator that brings one group together with another group that cannot normally come in contact with each other. So in this case, he is the priest of the Most High. And what a priest does is he represents God to the people and the people back to God. Now the Bible tells us that Christ is our high priest. He is the mediator of a new covenant, the one you and I live under. And because he is our high priest, we can now individually be priests unto God. In other words, we can have our own direct contact and relationship with God the Father. We don't need to go through an earthly priest to do that because we have a heavenly priest who ever lives to make intercession for us who's seated at the right hand of the Father. He is the connection that allows us to legally come into the presence of a holy God and to talk with Him as our Father and He to talk with us as our Son, as a Son. But in the Old Testament, Jesus was not in that function yet. But this Melchizedek comes as a precursor of that. And it says, And he was the priest of God Most High, the Most High God. And he blessed him. The Melchizedek blessed Abram's and said, Blessed be Abram of God the Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So here's that action of the priest as a go-between. He's standing over here representing God to Abram and said, Blessed are you, Abraham. And then he's standing in Abraham looking back at God and blessing God back on behalf of Abraham for what God has just done for Abraham. Now that's not our focus here, but I'm giving you background. So here you have Abram 
fresh off an incredible victory, now is bringing back literally two cities' worth of people and wealth back to their rightful possessors. And he's done that, and now he meets this priest representing God to him who has come to bless him. Now, if you go back into chapter 12, you'll see God appears to Abraham and announces to him that he wants to bring Abraham into a covenant and he is going to bless him. And so Abraham here, and this is all we really need to see for our purposes this morning, Abraham is having an encounter with God, with a representative on behalf of God, and in this encounter he's getting an image of what God is like. He is the priest of the Most High God. And now in Abraham's world there were a lot of gods out there. None of them were real, but there were a lot of gods out there. There are a lot of gods out there today, and none of them are real. There's one God who is the true and the living God, and he is El Elyon, which is the most high God. And Melchizedek is coming to Abram, appearing to him as the priest, the representative, the physical incarnate representative of the most high God. And his announcement is, Blessed are you, Abraham. My, the one I'm representing is blessing you. And he is the Most High God, and he is the deliverer of you from all your enemies. And then he blesses God back on Abraham's behalf. So here's what I want you to see. Abraham's had this incredible victory and now what he's realizing, if he hadn't realized it before, is the source of his victory was the Most High God. The source of his overcoming these odds was the Most High God. That's important for what we're going to see. The source of every victory you've had isn't how smart you were isn't how strong you were. Where do you think your smarts came from? Where do you think your strength came from? Where do you think your breath came from? So he's getting, an, he's getting a physical image, an encounter with a representative of the Most High God who is now announcing to him what this Most High God has done for him. Verse 20, And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And he, Abraham, gave a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. That's an incredible statement. I mean, he lost his city. And Abram's bringing back not only the people of his city but all their possessions, all the king's wealth. And the king is so grateful. It's amazing what being grateful does to you. It's also amazing what ungrateful, being ungrateful does to you. This king is so grateful that he says, and you know why he was grateful? Because he'd experienced losing everything. It's amazing when you lose everything, your priorities get adjusted. It's one of the values of a missions trip because we who have so much here and complain that we have so little spend a little bit of time with people who have so much less than we do and are so much more content. This king lost everything. Now that it's coming back to him, he realizes he doesn't need all that stuff. All that matters to him are the people. So he says to Abram, give me back the people, you keep all the stuff. That means all the king's stuff, which I'm sure was some nice stuff. Let's see what Abram does. Verse 22. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. So Abraham had some revelation of who this God was. And I've raised my hand, that's because he took an oath, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap 
and that I will take, I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I made Abram rich. Except only what the young man had eaten. In other words, what the young man had eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Anor, Eskol, Mamre, and let them take their portion. So what Abram is saying is, look, you can pay the men that went with me. But I'm not going to take anything from you because I've already raised my hand and a vow to God that He's my source. That I will not allow anybody to put in a position where they're saying to me, and I start to believe it, that they made me rich. So Abraham had some kind of insight into God as his source of his provision. And he was so determined, he had such an insight into that, that he recognized, I don't want to ever think that somebody else could be my source, because this God is a better source than you are, king of Sodom. Amen. Take care of my men, but I will not take anything from you, lest you think, and therefore I think, that you're my source instead of this most high God. So Abraham has now had an, had an encounter with God and a revelation through that encounter of who God is in the sense of He's the Most High God. He is my deliverer from every situation. And He is my source and my provision for everything. In other words, He's all I need. And notice, seeing that, He had an automatic response just as the king of Sodom was grateful for what had been done for him and his response was take everything just give me the people Abram's response was he gave a tithe to Melchizedek not because Melchizedek demanded it not because lightning bolts came down around him It was his response of his heart to seeing who this Most High God was to him. Let's look at another person. Actually, it's Abram's grandson. Let's go to Genesis 28. Now, here's what's happened here, and we'll spend more time in a few weeks on this story, because it's an incredible story of how it applies to us. Jacob is the one we're going to look at. Jacob was Abram's grandson. Abram had a son, Isaac, and then Isaac has twin boys, Esau and Jacob. While they were in their mother's womb, God said, I am going to bless the secondborn over the firstborn. I don't want to get in now to why he did that. The secondborn was Jacob. So God had already announced over his life he was going to bless him. But but Jacob's mother didn't fully trust what God said he was going to do. And Jacob, as he grew up, didn't fully trust what God said he was going to do. So Jacob began to take things into his own hands. And we'll talk about that story later on. The word Jacob means supplanter. He was born second with his hand on the heel of his brother who was born first, trying to pull his brother back so he would be born first. Because the firstborn had rights that the secondborn didn't have. And all the time growing up in his family, he had this mentality is, I've got to go get this for myself. I've got to work this scheme. I've got to figure out how to do this. I've got to be a mover or shaker. I've got to get this done so that I can get myself to a place which in reality God had already said, I'll give you. And what happened as a result of this, and again, we'll go into more detail in a few weeks, is the result of this, he has to leave home. His mother has to say goodbye to him. His father has to send him out. And he's now on his way to his uncle Laban's house because it's the only place he can go right now. And he's about to have an encounter with another representative of God. 
verse 10. Now, when Jacob went out from Beersheba, he went toward Haran. That's where he's headed. That's Laban's house, Laban's country. He came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And there he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay on it in that place to sleep. And then he had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached into heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. So he's having an encounter with the Lord. The Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and of God of, of, and the God of Isaac, and the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Now he's been trying to take it by his own schemes and his own devices. And the Lord God is announcing to him, I am the God who belongs to Abraham. In other words, I'm the God who made a covenant with Abraham. I'm the God who made a covenant with your father Isaac. That's who I am. So he announces who it is that's appearing to him in this dream. Because it's important that, Ab- that, I, that Jacob knows who this God is that's talking to him, just as Melchizedek announced who he represented also. It all comes down to this. Recognizing who God really is. Not just in the Bible, but who He is in the world, who He is in heaven, and who He is in my life. Abraham had a revelation. He was the Most High God. Creator of heaven and earth. Deliver from all His enemies. Jacob is beginning to have a revelation of who this God is. I am the God of your father Abraham, the God of your father Isaac of your grandfather Abraham, your father Isaac. And notice what he says to him. And I, in the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. He already made that promise to Abraham. He already made that promise to Isaac. And now he's renewing it to this man, Jacob. And also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. He goes on down and says, verse 15, Behold, I am with you and will keep you. That means take care of you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I've done all that I've spoken to you. Jacob woke up from the dream and said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. Isn't that interesting? The Lord can be somewhere with us and we not know it. Maybe in the middle of what you're going through you feel like I don't know where God is and yet the true word says God is with you you just don't know it. And the Lord was with me here, and I didn't realize it. Verse 17. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! There's none like, there's none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Oh, that we would say that, that this is an awesome place, that there's nothing, no, there's nothing, nothing other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Maybe it's because the Lord is in this place and we don't know it. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he put under his head and set, up, set it up as pillars and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city that it had previously named was called Luz. Verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow. Remember, his grandfather made a vow. Saying, If God will be with me and keep me this way, that I'm going, and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I come back to my father's house. In other words, basically God does what he said he'd do. Now we'll see later on when we get through the story that he grew in faith. But this is where his faith was. Basically, I'm making a vow, God, if you do what you said you're going to do, then here's what I'll do. So that I come back to my father's house, then the Lord shall be my God. Wasn't that gracious of him? But in reality, what he's saying is, I'm now seeing who you are. I thought all along I was my God. Yeah, I heard about you from my father. I heard about you from my grandfather. I heard about you from my mother. But let's, I mean, come on, real life is you've got to take care of yourself. Remember the world system over here? See, it's still back then. Real life, if I don't take care of numero uno, who's going to do it? 
Real life is I've got to figure out how to get ahead. And now it's dawning on him who this God is. And that this God has made a promise, a covenant promise, to be with him in everything he goes through and to take care of him and to provide for him. To the point where I I didn't know God was here. I was here. He's been here all along. And I'm just discovering He's really here. He's really who He said He is. And so God, here's where I've come to. I make a vow. If you really do what you say you'll do. If you really come through on this commitment and promise, then you're my God instead of me. See, He's growing in His faith. And notice God meets him where he is. Isn't that comforting? He meets him where he is. Then the Lord will be my God. Verse 22. And this stone which I've set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth or a tithe to you. There it is again. When he saw who God was in his, in, in, his, in, his, in his power, in his provision, when he saw who God was in terms of his, his being there with him and wanting to be involved in his life and wanting to be God to him and take care of him, his reaction, his response, just as his grandfather's was, then of everything that you give me, I will give a tenth to you. If you haven't figured it out yet, we're going to talk about tithing. But we've laid a foundation. I want to begin, and all we're going to do this morning is talk about really our attitude of what, of t- about tithing what it, and what it is. And then next week we'll begin to get into the principle behind tithing. Because most of the reason people struggle with it is they don't understand it. And most people, if they have understanding, will realize why it is so important. And as I sat down to, to, to prepare this, I really felt the Lord tell me, start to talk to me about our attitude about tithing first. Because the attitude you have about something determines how, much, how open you are to hear and to change your thinking. So if we're afraid of something, we're not going to really hear the heart of what God's saying to us And if we don't hear the heart of what God's saying to us, we either will close down and won't do it, or we'll do it for the wrong reasons. So it really begins with opening our hearts to be teachable, to allow God to speak to us and show us His heart in this matter of tithing. Because so many people see tithing through the wrong set of eyes. So we're going to talk about this attitude. First of all, some people just have a problem talking about money in church. It's interesting, we'll talk about everywhere else. And I was kind of raised in those circles where you don't talk about money in church. What's the reason people don't want to talk about money in church? (laughs) Just like there's other things we don't want to talk about in church. But it's interesting, the Bible says a whole lot about money and how we handle money what money means, and the attitude we have towards money. Jesus, in Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44, sat in a temple and watched people make their offerings and commented on it to his disciples. He watched not only who gave, but how much they gave. And he said, isn't it interesting? He says, see these people? He says, they're wealthy and they gave a lot but they gave out of their excess. See this woman here? She only gave two mites, two little pieces of money. But she gave that out of, that was basically all she had. So he watched what they gave. He watched the heart with which it was given. So if Jesus watched something, then it's something we need to look at and be open to a lot, because he's watching anyway and find out what he's seeing. Wouldn't that be worthwhile? All right, Lord, you're watching now. What are you seeing? See, some people have the idea that this is a private matter. It isn't to Jesus. 
So we better, we need to look at, well, what is he seeing in me so that I know what I may need to make an adjustment to? But if we just harden our hearts and say, oh, no, you know, this is, not a, this is none of your businesses, then what we're not going to be open to is God to show us the blessing that he has in tithing. All right. Getting quiet here. <laughs> so some people have an attitude, well, you know, it's, you know, it's, 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 we shouldn't talk about in church. Some people have an attitude, it's between God and me. It's private. After all, the Bible, Jesus said, don't let your left hand know what you're right. You know, don't let people know what you're giving and things like that. And we don't publicize it here. But he didn't say use that as an excuse to never look at it in your own heart and to not learn some of God's principles about it. So we take something Jesus said for one purpose and turn it around and use it for our own purpose. That almost sounds like what happened in the garden, didn't it? We better not go there. All right. Many people, and this is what I used to do, saw it as God's taxing us. This is what it costs to be a Christian. I have drilled our staff to never, ever use one particular word when it comes to offering. And that's collect or collection. Because the IRS collects taxes. God receives offerings. All the difference in the world between those two words. Collect means I owe something that I don't want to give, but I don't have any choice. And when people, some people hear tithing, that's what they hear. And if they, once they come to the place of admitting that that's what the Bible says we need to do, they'll see it as it's what I, it's kind of like the thing I got to put up with to be a Christian and completely miss it. Abraham didn't say to Melchizedek, how much is this going to cost? What's, what's your share of this? What, ta- what, do I owe? What, what do I owe for God helping me out here? 10%? All right, that's pretty good. He didn't say that at all. He, his response to seeing who God is and what God had done for him was to look at all God had provided him with and say, I want to take a tenth of this and give it to you. Now the tithe was not a new concept. It had been practiced in other cultures. So the coming up with a tenth was not something he just strained at. It was, it was, a, it was a tradition that other cultures used. But I want you to see that Abraham didn't pay a tax to Melchizedek to pay God back for delivering him. And neither did Jacob. All right. We've got to move on here. Some people argue, well, you know, in the Old Testament, I understand that. We'll deal with that, this issue later on, whether it's in the New Testament or not. But their attitude was, in the Old Testament, they were under rules and restrictions of what they had to do. But in the New Testament, we have the freedom of the Spirit. The church today is so full of the freedom of the Spirit they've lost consciousness of the responsibility that goes with being a child. There's a term in a family when a child is so full of their freedom and have no sense of responsibility, it's called being spoiled. And if you've ever been around a spoiled brat, it's not fun. And I wonder sometimes how our Father in heaven sees us. I don't have this, and they have that, and I don't have this, and they don't have that. God's saying, the breath you're breathing. (laughs) See, Abram and Jacob had a revelation of who this God is and what he'd done for them and was doing for them. And their response was, my God, my God, of everything you give me, 
not everything I earn, everything you give me. See, where they say, well, I earned it. No, you, you did work for an employer that God provided for you. Lord, receive a tenth of this as honor to you and recognition. And we'll talk later on about what's behind it. But I want you to see this morning the attitude is so important. So we seem to have, you know, well, in the New Testament we can do what we want to do. No, you can't. (laughs) We'll look at scriptures that show you that in the New Testament everything we have belongs to Him. You were bought with a price. Therefore, you are not your own. Now, if you're not your own, how can your possessions be your own? It's a heart issue, and that's what we're going to get into. Tithing seems to be forced to me apart from my will. Then don't tithe. You're missing it. We'll talk about that later. Some see it as too much. It's unreasonable. <laughs> I'll share with you at some point, my, well, my testimony. When I got saved, I never heard of tithing before. I got saved, and I don't remember where I heard about it. Somewhere I heard about it, and I went, because <gasps> <laughs> at the time I was practicing attorney in a large firm in Boston, making more than, I'm sure this was more, more than we were, could spend by several times. And I got paid once a month. And I remember between payday one month and payday the next month, I heard about tithing. And I was never good at math, but 10% I could figure out pretty quickly. And I was a deacon in this church, and one of the ones responsible for counting and collecting and recording the offerings in this church. So I knew pretty much what everybody gave. And I'm embarrassed. I won't tell you what we gave. But it was a tip. I've tipped waiters more than I would give weekly to God. Because it's what I was raised in. I didn't know any better. I'm just showing you the shock I went through from to 10%. Are you kidding me? And I had a choice to make. I could either be obedient to what I saw or I could rebel against what I saw. And it was God's grace I didn't fool around with it. One of the things God was gracious with me somehow, I knew I needed to take that step now or never. And we'll share some of the testimony of that later on. But that's the attitude some of us have. Well, it's an unreason. Unre- do you have an idea? Do you have any idea how much that is? Yeah, God knows how much 10% of what you do. Do you know who he is? Do you know what he does for you? Do you know what he wants to do for you? I know what 10% is, but what do you know? Do you know that he's really here? Do you know that God's in this place? Do you know that God's taking care of you and providing for you and wants to do so much more, but we limit him? I can see this is going to be fun. (laughs) Many people are afraid of it and just say, I can't do that. We'll talk about that. The result is they avoid it. Don't avoid it. If you're afraid of it, if you're afraid of anything God, you see God telling you to do, don't avoid it. Talk to Him about it. Ask Him to help you. He'll meet you where you are. We'll see how clearly He met Jacob where He was. But don't run away then God can't help you with it. And it doesn't go away because once you've seen it, it goes with you. It just eats at you. 
So if you're at that place where you're afraid, say, oh my goodness, I can't do that. That's okay. God will meet you where you are. But don't run away from it. Because remember, he's not the IRS. He's not looking at you. You haven't done that, boy. You're in trouble. I'm going to get you. There's a reason why he wants you to tithe. There's a reason why it's so important, which we'll talk about. He wants to help you get to that place. Okay. Some people, and this is interesting to look at, some people see it as the way you work God's financial system. They've got series on tithing and prosperity and all these things and say, all right, it's the key to prospering with God. And, and it is in a sense, but that's not why we do it. So they figured out how to do this. All right, I'm tithing. And the sign you're doing this is you're upset because you're not getting what you a return on your investment. And I've heard people teach it. Hey, this is a great deal. You invest 10% and you get 100% back. That's a great deal. Is that a good deal? 100% return? And sold that way. The problem is if that's why you're doing it and you're not getting your 100% return at this point, you'll get upset. You want to hold a stockholders meeting. Find out how the management's mishandling. The problem is there are no stockholders. It's a monopoly. So when our heart reacts and we get angry, we say, yeah, but I know what Malachi says and I don't see the windows of heaven open. I don't see this. We'll talk about that too. But when we say that and we're angry, maybe in our hearts we're trying to operate God's system. Which is no different than what Jacob did, except he, we're doing it with God's principles instead of God's heart. Okay. couple more issues here. So what we need to do, and this is why we're spending this time on it this morning, we need to examine our own hearts. Those of us that are tithing, we need to check ourselves and, and, and ask ourselves, why am I doing it? Because you could be one place last month and we can drift. Do the same things, but we can drift. We talked about that when it came to sowing and reaping, that we can become bucket pluckers. They're passing the bucket and we drop our offering in the bucket. That's not an offering, that's dropping money. And I've been guilty of that too. It's time to pay our tithes. No, we worship Him with our tithes. We pay our taxes. We, worship, we don't worship the government with our taxes. We pay our taxes because it's a debt we owe that we don't want to pay, but we have to because it's what the law says and they'll get us if we don't and because it helps pay for all the things that we need and it pays for some things we don't need (laughs) we won't go there either but with God it's not collecting something it's not paying something it's worshipping Him so why are we talking about this now? I want to just dispel some things First of all, it's, cause not the, it's not because the church needs money. We're doing great. We're doing fine. So it's not... I don't know that I've ever taught here on tithing. So it's long overdue. I know prior pastors have taught on it, but I've never taught on it. So it's, it's, pa- it's long past due. But the reason God's gotten my heart is because there's many of you that need to do it for your sake. And you, if you have understanding of it, then you will. Because we're not bad people, it's just we don't know. We don't understand. And so that's the main reason we're doing this right now. But even more so, because what's involved with tithing isn't the money, it's the heart issue, which is what we'll get into next week. It's a heart issue. The tithing is important, but what's really important is what goes with it. Anytime God has ordained something, there's a good reason for it. I don't need to know the reason, but it sometimes is helpful to know it. All right. So why do we talk why are we talking about it now? First of all, it's not because the church needs the money. 
but for our own sakes. And we will see that it's an issue of hearting. Now let's talk about what tithing is. Because it's amazing how much misunderstanding there is out there about tithing. Very simply, the word tithe means tenth. And we saw what Jacob said, God, I vow to you that of everything you give to me, everything that you bring to me, I will give back to you one-tenth of it. That's a tithe. That means that anything I give beyond that is an offering because a tithe is the tenth. I've heard people say, well, I'm, I'm going to start by tithing 5%. That's not tithing. That's going to say I'm going to give a tenth by giving fi- a fifth. If you can just convert tithe into tenth. So I'm, a tithe is one-tenth of whatever God brings to you. Say, well, whatever, what is, See, one of the things I, I get concerned when we talk about this is people become legalistic. Well, what, what is it that God brings to me? What have you increased? Again, it's not a legalism. It's a heart issue. And we'll talk more about that. So it's a tenth of what God has increased you with. Over what period? Since the last time I gave it. So in my case, when I first started, I was paid once a month. So I tithed once a month. And you know what? I didn't go broke. I actually prospered. We're going to share some testimonies with you, some from well-known businessmen, and we'll pr- I'm going to try to get some testimonies even from in here of people whose lives were turned around when they took that s- step into tithing. So it's a tenth. It's a tenth of what God has brought to you. Okay. <laughs> Where do we bring it? Well, we'll see. The Bible says you bring it to the storehouse, your storehouse. What's a storehouse? It's where you're fed. So basically that means your home church where you are fed on a regular basis. That does not mean Brother Doodad and Sister Prophet. and it's good people out there. I'm not saying they're not. I'm just joking. Excuse me. But you may be getting fed from there but that's not your storehouse. Storehouse is the place God has also stored up to feed you. And it's not just it's not just teaching on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. It's when your something's happened in your family like there's been a death in your family or there's a marriage or something, you can't pick up the phone and call sister once wonderful whose office is in San Francisco, she's not going to come and do your funeral for you. She's not going to come and sit by your side in the hospital. Storehouse doesn't just mean feeding the Word of God. It means a family. It's an atmosphere. The Old Testament will see that God used the tithe to provide for the operation of the church, and He does today. But it's, it's, it's brought to the storehouse. Now, couple other things, quickly. Because it's a tithe on everything that God brings to you, it's not something you pay just when you come to church, or you give just when you come to church. Some people's idea was, well, I'm here, I, I give a tenth of, what I, of my income, but if I'm not here, I'm on vacation, so I don't give a tenth. I'll give it somewhere else. But tithing means it's not based on when I come to church. It's based on what God's brought to me because it's between God and me. It's not a church tax. It's God's worshiping God with a tenth of what He has provided for me because He's the most high God to me. He's the deliverer of all my enemies. He provides all that I need and I worship Him with a tenth of what He brings to me. The last question I'm going to cover is, all right, is it the, on the gross 
or on the net? I understand the question because I asked it to God myself, but it's the wrong question. I've heard it answered this way, which do you want his blessing on? But it's not, uh, that's, that's not the answer that I give. I give the God, answer God gave to me. I be, we've been tithing for a while, and we went through one particular time that was very tight financially. And it was because I made some stupid decisions. And I've shared some of this with you before. And I remember, I can still see it, driving down this road. And it was like, I'm looking at, because we'll deal with, you know, but I can't afford to tithe. i got all my bills to pay. We'll talk about that. And I'm saying, God, you know, would it be okay for a while if I tithed on the net and not the gross? I've always tithed on the growth, gross. And, and I heard inside of me as clearly as I've ever heard anything. I heard God say to me, what do you want to do? It would have been easier for him to say, just pay the gross, on the gross. But he put it back in my heart. And he said, what do you want to do? And I started to weep. Because I said, Lord, I don't, want to, I don't want to go to the net. I want to tithe on the gross. And so I continued to do it. And in a very short time, we got out of where we were. And God began to pay off all our debts and all kinds of things. And here's, this is why I'm sharing this with you. It's in here. See, it's not a legalistic. It's not a tax. It's not like you've got to do this time of year. Figure what is you know what percentage do they take this deduction from? And all? It has nothing to do with that. It's a heart issue, and it is between you and God. But whether God whether God requires it is not between you and God, because I'm going to show you how clearly that is in His Word. So we're going to spend just a few weeks on this. Next time we're going to talk about the principle that's behind tithing. And I believe as you understand the principle that's behind tithing, you'll have a better understanding of what we began to talk about today, that it's not God collecting something from you, but it's an opportunity we have, to, a privilege we have to worship Him and to honor Him.